Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I want to introduce to you another podcast host on the Christians for Liberty Network. This is Alex Bernardo, and he is the host of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast, which has recently been added to the Christians for Liberty Network. Alex is another really great host and a great addition to the Christians for Liberty Network because the content that he covers is from a slightly different angle from some of the other shows that we have, and also he is a great interviewer. I have listened to and enjoyed many of his episodes, and he has a lot of really, really great guests on. My favorite guest that he's had on is me. Just kidding. But actually, that's the episode that I want to play for you because what I want to do is give you an introduction to Alex because we had a really great conversation a few weeks ago. This was an episode that was on his show, and I think it's really important that you get to know Alex through how he interviews. And also the content that we talked about was really relevant to this audience for my show. So I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. My guest today is Doug Stewart. Doug is the CEO of the Libertarian Christian Institute, an organization that explores the relationship between libertarianism and Christian thought. He is the co-author of the books Faith Seeking Freedom and a freelance graphic designer and video producer. Today, we are going to explore his background, the work he does for LCI, the relationship between libertarianism and Christianity, and much more. Doug, welcome to the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. Hey, Alex. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's great to have you on here, man. Before we get into the meat of the episode here, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work. Yeah, well, I grew up in the most beautiful place on earth, which is West Virginia and in the mountains. I know a lot of people don't think that because they're like, oh, I've been through this little tiny sliver of West Virginia on my way from Pennsylvania to Ohio, and it's just not anything extra special. But I grew up in the mountains where I got to ski in the winter and the autumn was like really beautiful. And I grew up conservative in a small sort of independent Baptist church. We weren't Baptist by name, but it was kind of the church I grew up in. And I went through all the kinds of schools that people, that students can go through. Like I was homeschooled for a bit. I did public or government school. I also did private school. So my parents were very involved in making sure that my brother and I succeeded in life. And as they were raising us, my older sisters were kind of out of the house by the time I was thinking about the future after school. So, so it was for most of my childhood, it was just me and my brother in the house. But that's kind of my like really early growing up. Me, one way that I think about my journey in life is that I have successful, successively broadened and widened the type of world I believe I live in. What I mean by that is I grew up in a really, really small church, like pretty secluded area. And then I went to a Bible college, which was around a thousand. I think by the time I graduated, there might have been like twelve to fifteen hundred students somewhere in there. And that's really small. A lot of the people I know went to like universities where that's like half like that's not even that's a small sliver. Like that's their class. And so I widened my world by just a little bit more. <laughs> and then I left that world and I widened it even more. I did some work outside ministry and I also went to seminary. I actually worked for Apple for 11 years. And so my world was very much widened by the mostly progressive, but not entirely in every way with depending on the coworkers that I was working with, mostly progressive outlook on life. I mean, we all kind of know where Apple is and that was kind of where things were going even back when I was working for them. But during that time, I actually went to seminary and I got an education at Biblical Theological Seminary, which is now called Missio Seminary in Philadelphia and was a master divinity in leadership development. What was interesting about my program this is a nice little tidbit of information. I Apple got to pay for some of my seminary because the class okay. titles wasn't preaching. It was like presentation skills or something, but it was a homiletics <laughs> class, right? So it was a class on preaching, but the title was sort of progressive, if you will, by the way they thought about it. And so when I submitted for reimbursement, it was somewhat job related simply because I was teaching at Apple is what I was doing. The manager approved it and Apple corporate approved it or whatever. So it was kind of a fun thing that Apple got to pay for some of my seminary. <laughs> That's great. So after seminary, I stuck with Apple for a little while. And then, of course, 
somewhere in there, let's see, that would have been about halfway through my time at Apple. I was always a dissident, I guess you could say, or an, a contrarian thinker. That's the word I'm looking for is contrarian. And I was listening to talk radio and I listened, I never listened to Rush Limbaugh, but I did listen to Glenn Beck. And he always said things like, I'm a libertarian at heart. And that led me to Ron Paul. I know some people might have heard my story on my podcast, but that led me to Ron Paul. And when I started in seminary, really caring about things like social justice, things that we now kind of identify with as a leftist Christian or a leftist political alignment, I was exploring those things and something just sort of sat wrong with me about the policy prescriptions that those on the left theologically were actually proposing. And I'm like, something doesn't seem right here. And, you know, I think maybe it was a nudge from the Holy Spirit saying that you need to learn some economics. You need to learn something about the world that you didn't already know. And economics was one of the fields of study that made sense there. And so guess who I looked up first? It was Ron Paul because he was about the economy. And that led me to the Austrian school, led me to libertarian, libertarianism. So around that time, as I was developing, Norman Horn was also doing his own research. I didn't know him at the time. And in 2000, late 2008, he founded libertarianchristians.com. In 2010, he and I started chatting a lot more and I, he brought me on to do, be a regular contributor, which was, I don't know, maybe once a month, once every two months I was contributing something. And so it just kind of grew from there. He always had a goal of making an institute out of libertarianchristians.com. And so by the time 2015 rolls around, it becomes a libertarian Christian institute. I was pretty involved with libertarianchristians.com. And so I was naturally a good fit to be on the founding board of the Libertarian Christian Institute. So that's probably a picture, man. I just kind of told you like everything from like young childhood to how to, <laughs> to LCI. I don't know if there's any gaps in there you might want to dig in, dive in a little bit more. No, that was actually the perfect springboard for a couple of the questions that I wanted to ask you uh, is great overview. So you said that you kind of grew up in like a small independent Baptist church. Just yeah. talk to us a little bit about your Christian faith. Like, was there a moment when you started taking it seriously or were you just always right. raised that way? And how has your faith kind of developed over time? Yeah, I don't know how the theological sticklers would care to respond to how what I'm about to say, but I'm pretty sure I've always been a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> I confess my sins at age four and then again at age five in terms of the sinner's prayer method that is very common back then in, in those kinds of circles. But I've always been committed to my faith. I've always been. There was never a time in my life that I could look back and say, I'm not committed to Jesus and I'm not committed to the faith that I have. That doesn't mean I haven't doubted. It doesn't mean that I haven't evolved in my faith in a number of ways, some of which I have friends who may or may not approve of. But I've never even thought of leaving. It's never been, and I know friends who have. I have had, I mean, people who were either in my wedding or I was in their wedding who have moved on from the faith, maybe even in their marriages. Like, there, I know people who've done that, and I can understand some of their reasonings, but it's never been something that was on the table for me. And so I'm very committed to my faith. The faith I grew up with was, I don't know how many people are familiar with conservative Baptists, but it's very evangelical in a number of ways, except in culture. The culture was a little bit more, I don't want to say sequester because that makes people think of Amish <laughs> or like Mennonite or whatever. And they're actually, by the way, less sequestered than most people realize. I live in Amish country right now. But yeah, secluded could be one word. And there's, and I don't know, the words evading me right now, but basically the idea of dividing over what you think is right and it's okay to sort of like form your own denomination. And I grew up for a little while, I was kind of like, well, our denomination did figure it out. I mean, we have to stand by our beliefs and we're the ones who are right. Like, why would I not say to you that you're wrong about your faith or whatever? And I've grown out of that sort of really strict mentality on the one hand, but that was kind of where I grew up. We were very adamant about our faith. It was very Republican. I can't imagine, I don't think anybody really was a Democrat in the sort of like sense that we think of a Democrat nowadays. There might have been because West Virginia, at least when I was growing up, it was very often went to Democratic local and state officials, but like typically Republican presidents, at least in the mid 90s and upward or in more recently. So all that to say, that's kind of the politics that I grew up in. I do remember at an early age reading I don't know if it was in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians where Paul says, what do we have to do with the works of darkness or what do we have to do with unbelievers? Like it's sort of a leave, leave their affairs alone was sort of rubbed against 
the view that we have to judge people by their behaviors. Yeah. And that's a very libertarian-ish thing to say if you're a Christian who thinks you have to judge everybody's behaviors. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have discernment about what people are doing. And I can't say that, oh, you're committing a sin. But what it does mean is that there is this sort of like, well, why would you expect a non-believer to behave in a certain way when right. they don't even share your, let alone your faith, they don't even share some of the your beliefs about God. Some of them don't believe in God or whatever. So even then, I was fairly contrarian to bring up that word again to a lot of what my parents taught me and what our pastor taught. And I was always asking questions and that kind of thing. So, yeah, no, that's great. And during this time, what was the mo besides the fact that Apple was going to help you pay for it? What was the motivating <laughs> factor for you to go to seminary? I think it was around the time I was 15, which is really interesting because I have a 15 year old son and man, I was young. But <laughs> anyway, I thought that I would go to Bible college because I wanted to go into ministry. And at that time, being in the ministry means you're a preacher, you're a pastor, right? And I like public speaking. I like teaching. I would be, we were a small enough church that as a teenager, I would be preaching on Sunday mornings when the pastor couldn't find anybody else. Okay. So I might've been last on the bench, but I was yeah. on the bench, right? And it wasn't a long bench, of course, but you know, cause there'd be like preachers from neighboring churches a couple hours away everything was like at least an hour away from where I lived. So they were stuck with me from time to time. Right. <laughs> but I would, you know, I would get up and lead in youth group and things like that. But I always figured I would be a pastor. Then I went to college, went to Bible college, and I went into the pre-seminary program. So I always kind of knew I'd get a divinity or master of divinity degree or a theology of ministry degree, a THM or what, something like that. And then I started realizing that the thing that I liked about wanting to be a pastor was really the teaching part. But I also had these other interests. You mentioned that I was a freelance graphic designer and video producer, and those were some of the interests that I also had. And about halfway through my college years, I, our Bible college actually introduced a, what's the degree? It was in communications and it was two different tracks. One was drama and one was journalism. And in retrospect, I almost should have chosen journalism just because I feel like I would know a little bit better about how to analyze the news and stuff. But I chose the drama track because I was able to use electives to do film classes because there were a few, there were some film classes that they were offering. And so I did that and I kind of had this plan to use this as a time to develop skills in that particular area. And then I would probably later go to seminary. I actually was a teacher right out, right out of college at the Christian school that I went to when I was younger. Okay. So I did that for one year and taught Bible. And then I decided, you know what? I was shifting away enough in my theological beliefs. That wasn't a good fit for me anymore. But in any case, that was kind of what I did. Moved out, moved to Pennsylvania at that point. And let's see, where was I? You were asking me about seminary. So yeah, so I moved to Pennsylvania and my best friend who is who was going to seminary, he was a chaplain in the army and he was going to seminary and I was reading books by the people that he was being assigned in seminary. And he was one class ahead of me in terms like, because he, he started the year before me. And he goes, Doug, you're like reading literally. And I didn't know this until he told me when we were just talking about what we were reading. He's like, my professors in seminary are assigning me all these books that you're reading by John Frankie <laughs> and Brian McLaren and some of these other people and some other people that I, names escape me at the moment. And I was like, oh, maybe I should look into the seminary that you're going to. And so I did, and that's where I ended up, which was at Biblical. So that I started in 2005 and went through 2008. Yeah. So during this time, and I had a very similar experience to yours too, where I was in high school and I decided I wanted to go into ministry. And it took me about three or four weeks into my undergraduate degree to realize that I didn't want to get a degree in ministry. And so I want to get mm -hmm. a degree in biblical studies. But I mean, just like you, you have that background going to a college like that and you have to read all of these books and it completely changes your theology. Like for me, yeah. I, when I was in high school, like I read the New Testament over and over and over again and I just couldn't figure it out. Like I, I kept on like, banging my head against the text and it was just all very complicated. And once you go to school and you start studying, it really does kind of open up a lot of doors. So like during that time for you, what were some of your influences that really pushed yeah. you theologically to think about things in a different light? Yeah, well, I think a lot of the influences were the ones at the seminary. There were a handful of professors. Now, the one particular professor whose book I was reading, his name is John Frankie, and he wrote a book called beyond foundationalism and it had to do with 
Theology in a Postmodern Context, I think is the subtitle. And then he later wrote Missional Theology or Theology. I can't remember. I should probably look on my shelf and <laughs> see if I can locate it here. But in any case, he wrote some books that I was reading and he was very influential. He was a professor. I told you when you were interviewed on my podcast that he had the pre-copy of The Last Word by N.T. Wright. Oh, OK. He, yeah, yeah, he yeah. handed me. So he was he wrote a blurb for it. And so he was like, oh, you could have this. But anyway, he was very influential. He his main motto was reformed and always reforming. And that's a very often forgotten element of the Reformed faith. Yeah. Is that there is an always reforming mindset and that we shouldn't always be set in our ways about every single thing. But that was the spirit of which I approached theology. And growing up in a conservative home, conservative Baptist home, we were right about everything. And <laughs> you go to seminary to figure out how wrong you are about all the things you entered seminary. We even joked when we were done. I'm pretty sure you might have done the same thing. It's like, wow, we came here knowing everything and now we know nothing. Yes, <laughs> and yeah, well, yeah. A lot of people don't realize that is that your world just opens up in a certain way where you realize that you have to be humble as you, one, approach the text and also as you embrace your theology. It's one thing to be like, all right, I'm pretty sure I know what this means or I'm pretty sure that based on the whole corpus of scripture, I can affirm these doctrines. I mean, that's why we have creeds in the first place is to sort of make right. these shorthands for those kinds of things. But at the same time, be able to say, well, I'm confident in those things, but I'm also willing to change my mind. There are some things that I'd pretty much not willing to change my mind on just because it doesn't seem worth the hassle to try, like things like the resurrection. It just like my mind goes to like, well, that would that's just such a far leap for me. But even things like infant baptism, I might rile up some of your audience, depending on where they stand on some of these issues. Like <laughs> even things like infant baptism or baptism by sprinkling versus immersion. I can be as opinionated as I want, but I understand why other people have different traditions. And so in any case, I would say that one thing that I majorly learned in seminary was that there were a lot of different traditions, both represented in my class and also at the seminary, that had really, really good answers for and really good foundations and explanations and interpretive frameworks for how do we understand a certain text? How do we understand a certain theology? Additionally, as much as I did not like my church history class, I started to appreciate why it might be useful for us to understand church history to some degree. Yeah. At some point, I was kind of like, well, why can't I just go to the Bible and see what it says? And I, that's such a, I look back now and I'm like, well, how would I have known better? But like, th there really is no way to just simply come to the Bible today and not have any sense of like what came before us. It's not Christian to do that, even if that doesn't mean God can't speak to you if you don't know anything about church history or how the interpretive history of the Bible goes. But it's really, really helpful to understand that. And yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. How would you describe yourself theologically today? Eh. That's a good question. I've often thought about that, and I don't know. <laughs> to be perfectly blunt, I don't know. I it, When people ask me roughly, I say I'm probably somewhere between Anabaptist and Anglican in that I am pretty sure I'm a pacifist. I have a little bit of hesitancy because of the non-aggression principle in me is saying, well, but if you need to, you know, defend people, it might be okay. Right. And so I'm maybe reluctantly abide by using force to prevent something, but I think there's a moral case for doing that. But yeah, so Anabaptist in that regard, Anglican, and I kind of say that as a shorthand, not knowing entirely about the Anglican faith, but mostly because of N.T. Wright, like some right. of his views on things. And so I'm very much aligned with N.T. Wright on, on a handful of things. I would probably say I'm left of center on theology if I were to sort of like have to pick somewhere on the spectrum. But that doesn't mean that I embrace anything that appears to be left-wing politics. In politics, the only thing that I could potentially be aligned with a left on is maybe immigration. I mean, that's yeah. that might be about <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of what I wanted to get to next. So you have kind of all these theological influences and your theology has developed over the course of your life. And you talked earlier about how you went from listening to a Glenn Beck and then you discovered through him, Ron Paul. Was there like a Damascus Road experience for you within your libertarian journey where you like realized, hey, I'm actually not a conservative anymore? What was your libertarian journey yeah. like? I don't have a Damascus Road experience. If you interview Norman Horn, he will tell you his moment that he had for me. I am pretty sure during seminary, I was ignoring the books that I was probably supposed to read. And I was reading Eric Schonsberg's book, 
turn neither to the right nor to the left. And it is a little bit more conservative in its, in its interpretive methodology. That's probably not the right way. It's more conservative theologically. But I was reading it because we were talking a lot about social justice, about public faith issues. I mean, if you, I mean, oh, wow, I just thought about something. It would be interesting. The cohort that I was in, that was what they call them instead of classes. We were a group and we had to go through the whole program for three years. And it was sort of a three-year commitment. It wasn't just like, hey, you go to seminary for one year. They wanted people committed to three years. And so you had to come up with a name. And I actually was the person who suggested and sort of not pushed for as in like I had to really get people's support, but for the word sojourners. So our class was the sojourners class. Well, some people might recognize that there's a magazine out there and a website called Sojourners, and it's run by Jim Wallace, who is about as left as you can get, who is, if he's not embraced Marxism, he is certainly Marxist in his way of thinking. And whatever, that's another conversation per se. But anyway, I was in that direction in a number of ways, but then the politics just never worked out. But we were talking about things in that realm in my seminary class, and I was just not happy with the answers. And so I was reading all these other books uh, libertarianism distracted me from succeeding better in seminary, I suppose. And so Eric Schonsberg book, Turn Neither to the Right Nor to the Left, was know, like a 350-page book. And he just went through a whole bunch of particular issues. And it was basically a defense of libertarianism from the scriptures. So if I were to pick a book, that probably was the one that sort of like solidified things for me. And then a lot of it was learning economics from Fee Online. At the time, yeah. they were doing their fee summer programs or whatever and they recorded everything and pretty soon after they would put those recordings up on for as podcasts or downloads or whatever i don't know what we did back then probably tape that wasn't true but that's not that, <laughs> that long, not that ago, long yeah. ago <laughs> yeah but yeah i developed a habit in the 90s as i was a teenager of listening to books not books on tape but sermons on tape so there were a lot of preachers out there who did that so i was i listened to them a lot so i developed that habit so now that's why i'm into podcasting and listening to podcasts. Yeah, that's great. So I know that Norman Horn, I guess, and he's the founder of LCI. He asked you to help him out. What like motivated you to get yeah. started with LCI and why, why have you stayed there all these many years? <laughs> yeah, many years. Wow. It's interesting to hear you say that all these many years, because it's true. Yeah, it's like 13 so, years ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's kind of weird. From time to time, I start thinking about, because as we've grown as an organization, I've realized that this is becoming more and more of my life. And I'm starting to think, oh, wow, this is like my community. It's been a while. So I was sharing my thoughts on my website at the time, which does not exist anymore, other than like an archive on my hard drive somewhere in my house. But I was writing on my website. I wanted to get more views. And so I asked, hey, do you mind if I do a guest post? And so we just started doing that. And you know, eventually it just became into a regular contributorship, partnership, contributor, whatever, being a regular contributor. And it just seemed natural that like my abilities in doing web stuff, web design things, I was familiar with WordPress, which is what we were building our website on, but just kind of was a natural fit. And so as Norman was building the team, that's just what came out when LCI was founded. I would say perhaps it was solidified a little bit more in 2014 when we had the first in-person Christians for Liberty conference in Austin, Texas. And I was one of the speakers among a number of other people. And so it was just like a really, I think we had 90 to 100 people attend, which is really great. It could be a little less than that, maybe a little more, but I don't think it was more than that. So it was a really great turnout. So I was a speaker, was able to meet Norman in person for the first time after four years. Yeah, so then the following year we became a nonprofit and we needed a board. And so there were just a handful of people involved and we started that. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, you guys have done a lot of really great work. And of course, you have a podcast that you run that I was on a couple of weeks ago called the Libertarian Christian Podcast. And yeah. I actually, so a little anecdote here before I give you the question. So I started planning for my podcast, the Protestant Libertarian Podcast, about a year ago. And I bounced a couple of different names off of my head before I decided on Protestant Libertarian Podcast. And one of the ones that I was like heavily leaning towards was the Christian Libertarian Podcast. Because at this point, I had no idea that LCI existed and that there was even like other Christians that <laughs> believed in libertarianism. I didn't spend really any time online before I started the podcast. So I like I knew like I knew like the Tom Woods show and Scott Horton. And that was basically and like me. And that was it. So your access to the Internet was completely podcasts yeah, at yeah, that time yeah. instead of just like, yeah. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I didn't have any social media before Twitter, so yeah. I, didn't, okay. I didn't know like any of that. It never occurred to me to Google like Christian libertarian. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why that didn't happen. So I started the podcast in about, I don't know, three or four weeks after I'd started releasing episodes, I ordered a book, The Third Temptation. And on the back of it, it's yeah. Austin Rogers, I think is the author's name. And on the back of it, I saw when I got it in the mail, I was really excited on the back of it. I saw Libertarian Christian Institute and I was like, oh, there's another group out here that's already done that. And so I was really glad <laughs> at that point that I had not named my podcast, the Christian Libertarian Podcast, because that would have been really confusing. Yeah, yeah. But your podcast is called the Libertarian Christian Podcast. And yeah. you have run, uh, I mean, hundreds of episodes on that. And you've had some really high profile guests. So how do you go about planning for those episodes yeah. and selecting guests and things like that? Yeah, well, I'll tell you that. But I will say that I actually did Google podcast names before we came up with our name. <laughs> And there was a libertarian Christian podcast that was out there. Okay. And I was like, huh, interesting. And I don't know if it's still out there if, because our it was, what, 2017, I think we started this. So this is like six years, right? So this is like, yeah, it was about six years ago we started this podcast. And there was this libertarian Christian podcast. It had like six or seven episodes out. And the image was a, like an American flag, which... If you think about the irony of that, I didn't even listen to the podcast. Right. Or if I did, it was just sort of like, yeah, we're doing a holy, like the whole different thing. Like our production value is going to be, I don't know, maybe this guy's listening to this podcast and I have no idea. <laughs> like, I don't know who this person is. I don't want to put his podcast down, but I didn't listen to much and realize that it was just a different type of podcast than what we're going to produce. And it's okay to have a podcast of the same name. Like there are titles of books that are the same yep. as old books and even famous books. I just finished reading a book called A Guide for the Perplexed, which was written by Maimonides and now written by somebody brand new like 10 years ago. And so it's just books are like that. So yeah, podcast name, we decided to go with it anyway. But in any case, how do I choose my guests? How do I do that? So I was recently listening to Russ Roberts interview Sam Harris. And I like listening to both of those people on their I don't listen to Sam Harris's podcast. I listen to him in other venues, like when he's interviewed on other people, yeah. other people's shows and his talks and stuff. But I also listen to Russ Roberts a decent amount. And so he does, in fact, the week we're recording, that was his episode. It was almost two hours long, which is much longer than Econ Talk's normal podcast. And they were both discussing how they basically run their podcast and they get their guests based on what they're interested in reading at the time. Yeah. And I would like to say that that is roughly what I do, except... I can't just interview people that don't really relate to libertarian and Christian. When you have econ talk conversations for the curious, well, you could just talk to anybody you darn well please, right? Whereas for me, I can't just <laughs> throw out an episode on, you know, gardening. I don't ever read books about gardening. I just pick something. I'm not going to do an episode on gardening just because I'm reading this interesting book about horticulture or something like that. So all that to say, I mostly choose it based on the kinds of things that are going on. And here's what's really interesting. What's going on in my mind is often related to what's happening in current events. So, for instance, lately, I've been reading a lot of books about critical race theory, the woke. I've also been reading a lot of books about anti-Semitism. I've also been reading a lot of books about nationalism. I shouldn't say a lot of books about nationalism. They're on my, they're on my stand, right? And I'm planning to read them. And I will be able to email an author and they usually say yes. I've had a, I've had very few say no. And oftentimes it's, well, yes, but I'm going to have to wait a really long time. Call yeah. me, you know, email me back in six months kind of thing. The only real no I really got was N.T. Wright. Oh, yeah. But we got <laughs> to sneak in a, they let me ask two questions on his Ask N.T. Wright podcast uh, oh, awesome. at the end of an episode. And Justin read them out like he even throughout the Libertarian Christian Institute, and they said that we could use that on our show. And so Norman and I did sort of an addendum episode. So we kind of got content from N.T. Wright based on some questions I got to send him. <laughs> but that's the only hard like, yeah, no. <laughs> but anyway, most people are pretty open to talking and having conversations with others. I and mean, sometimes they're busy and it takes a while to get them on. But yeah, I mean, the big guess, it's a little intimidating to ask somebody like, Russ Roberts, I mean, he's like the longest libertarian podcaster in the history of the world, right? Like, yeah, he was doing podcasting when I was in diapers, right? Okay, that's not true, of course, right. but, but you know, yeah, it was, he's been it was around forever. for a while. It was, you know, he's been around for a while. And so I was really nervous interviewing him because I know he's not really a judgmental person, at least that's how I perceive him. So I could probably have relaxed a whole lot more. But 
I was well prepared. And so we had a good conversation. And but yeah, it's really intimidating sometimes to sort of email people who are like really well known. And sometimes they don't think of themselves in that way. And sometimes they're like, okay, well, yeah, schedule something with my assistant. Um, and I'm like, oh, okay, you're that level at this point. Right. Like your assistant schedules it and that works out just fine. These people are average people. Right. They have great minds. They have great skills and talent, but they're average people and they have something to say. And what I also try to aim for in my podcast as best as I can, sometimes it has, I have to sort of do the thing that everybody does and welcome the guests, have them introduce themselves and do all the kind of like first 10 minute stuff that everybody does. But I really want to make sure that the guest leaves thinking about my show. That was a great interview because I don't normally get to talk about that on other shows. And so I don't want to just simply be a repeat of what other people are listening to. Cause like at the end of the day, let's say I want to talk to Russ Roberts about something, right? Or let me say this, let me use Brian Kaplan, who was another person I was extremely nervous about, even more so than Russ, because I didn't know Brian as well in terms of his personality because he didn't have his own podcast and he didn't have a persona that I was familiar with as much. I was just like, how do I make sure I'm not wasting his time to make it worth his time? But how do I make sure I'm asking questions that no one else is asking? Other people can go on to any other episode and listen to Brian Kaplan talk about open borders till the day is long and he's not going to say much different if unless I'm asking different questions, right? And so yeah. that that brings in a level of interest that I hope view, uh, viewers, uh, one day viewers, we do some video podcasts, but listeners will actually be able to appreciate and be like, oh, well, you know, I've heard Brian Kaplan all the time, but I've never heard him ask this before. And so hopefully I can, if I'm being a little bit egotistical about it, I'm hoping that I can build a reputation on being the podcast host that doesn't ask normal questions. Yeah, I love it. And again, I really enjoy your show. And I think that you've had a lot of great people on there. And I've gotten some perspective that you don't get when you hear them on other shows. And I I really appreciate that about what you do. Why is it so important for people to explore the relationship between Christianity and libertarianism? Like what's significant about that to you? Yeah. Well, there's two elements to that. And one is the libertarian angle and one is the Christian angle. And the Christian angle, I think there are a lot of non-Christians out there in in the world that don't realize how important Christianity is to politics. And when I say politics, I mean the social order, like the whole like theology of how we relate to one another socially. I don't mean politics as in electoral politics in the sense that we often mean it in the United States and in the West. Christianity is a major social force in the world. It's a major cultural force. It has many different representations. And so the ability to understand how Christians think in and do politics is really, really important. So if somebody is out there and they're not, whether they're a libertarian or not, and they're not a Christian, they need to realize that Christians are a major, Christianity and Christians are major players in the world. Okay, so that's what's one angle. The other thing on the other side of the Christian thing is that a lot of Christians don't realize, and this is this goes back a little bit to what I said earlier about my teaching and understanding in seminary. I'm I'm pretty convinced that there is not simply a social element to the gospel. When we say that we are declaring Jesus as Lord, we are pledging allegiance to somebody other than the state, somebody other than other loyalties that are out there. Now, that doesn't mean we can't be loyal to our family and loyal to our churches, loyal to children, that kind of thing. That's not the same kind of thing. But when we pledge allegiance to Jesus, that is something that is a that is an overt political action not just a statement, right? It's an action that we are doing something that says we are not in alignment with what the state is doing. Now, that doesn't mean the state isn't sometimes in alignment with what God wants, like letting people be would be the broad brush I'll just paint for the moment. But when we declare Jesus as Lord, we are making a social slash political statement. And I don't think Christians have thought thoroughly about what that looks like. Those who have, have often realized or have often come to the conclusion that that means engaging in what we sort of see as leftist or progressive politics, which means, oh, well, you know, because Jesus wants us to feed the poor, then we have to all act together and feed the poor in this way. And then therefore taxation or therefore welfare programs or whatever it might be, those ways of thinking need to be challenged. And that's why the interplay between libertarianism and Christianity come into play is that you have a lot of information, knowledge, and wisdom from traditions that are not simply from within Christianity. So for example, we would have, we would say that we learn from science 
whether it's biology or chemistry or physics, we learn things from those different fields, right? And so when you think about the fields that deal with so social elements in our world, okay, they might be called the soft sciences for a reason, that's fine. But when you think about those things, well, what are we learning? We're learning things from economics that, about scarcity, supply and demand. Those things are not something that we can just, they're not socially constructed the way the left might want us to believe. That's not just some system that's come up with because communism hasn't just worked out yet or something. And so you have these different ways in which the world works that we can understand that we don't go to scripture to learn it. Although you look at scripture and you say, oh, well, yeah, property rights, that's a good thing. I don't know if we get property rights in the modern Lockean sense from the scripture, although there are people have been making that case, but it is definitely not contrary to scripture, despite the acts two, they all held things in common and some of these other things, right? So if you want to understand libertarianism and Christianity as a Christian, you need to have a view of the world and an understanding of the world that reflects reality. And so a lot of times there will be Christians out there who look at the world a certain way. I mean, you're, we're going to see memes. We've been seeing them for the last two years with inflation about how the wealthy corporate owners are just raising prices because they're greedy. <laughs> and it's like, okay, there's a simplistic version of that that is just stupid, right? And just false on its face. But then there's a more sophisticated version of that where you'll actually see articles explaining why certain industries didn't actually need to raise their prices. They're just doing it because everybody else is. And there is... I mean, just because something's got a grain of truth to it doesn't mean that it's like the explanatory, that it explains everything. I mean, that's my big problem with critical race theory right. and critical theory. It's like, well, okay, fine. Yes, there's racism. And yes, this can explain some of it, but that doesn't explain all of the racism that's out there, right? So you need to have a mindset that helps us understand how does the world work. And I think with libertarianism and Christianity, you, you get a really nice pairing. I think at some point you realize that if you're prohibited from aggressing on somebody, except for if, well, it's not aggression if you're just using self-defense, but if you're prohibited from aggressing and they're for, for hip, yeah, losing my words here. <laughs> if you're prohibited from aggressing and they're prohibited from aggressing against you, that's a really good start to a social order that we can yeah. start to think of, through, think through ethically. And it obviously gets a little bit more complicated as things get more and more people. We can start with the Robinson Crusoe situation and work our way up from there. But it actually is a pretty beautiful way of looking at the world. And you don't get everything from scripture in that regard. You get ethics, you get morality, you get how do we treat one another. And I would say that if you were to take Jesus seriously um, and thoroughly seriously, not just, oh, you should love your neighbor as you love yourself, therefore you should be okay paying more taxes to help the poor or whatever, that's a short way of thinking, as Thomas Sowell would say, that's a only stage one way of thinking, right? We need to think about beyond the other stage. Well, what about the neighbor you're taking from? Or what about the neighbor you're threatening to take from because he doesn't align with your views or he doesn't even follow Jesus, right? So all that to say, there's just a whole lot in scripture that you can get to, to realize that, wow, we really are meant to be free and meant to invite people to join what we're doing as opposed to joining up with and our allegiance is to Jesus, not this other thing, which is trying to get everybody else to do whatever, either the majority or if it's a monarch or the or Caesar or whatever, like they're the ones in control. So there's, it's a whole upside down order. And if you study and understand Christianity well enough, you understand the teachings of Jesus, you can't be a statist. Right. Well, and that's one of the goals of LCI is to kind of be an outreach program to help Christians better understand how libertarian principles intersect with their faith. What are some of the best strategies for convincing other Christians about libertarianism? <laughs> oh, man. That's a tough question. I know. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. And so here's the thing. Like a lot of times non-Christians don't realize that not all Christians think that they need to, I'll put it this way, non-Christians often will think of Christians who seize political power as basically fascists, right? Yeah. And they want to just simply seize control over the means of statehood, state production, right? They want to do that and they want everybody to live the way they want. And there are a lot of Christians who do that. Like there are a lot of Christians who would want to impose certain limits on people that would not reflect what a libertarian would believe. And so there is that. And so that's a really good strategy for understanding that Christians aren't like that. Here's the other thing for Christians. I can say to other Christians, say, you know what? You don't have to have an opinion over whether somebody does this legally, right? 
Like, do you understand that? Because they think of like, well, if it's wrong, it should be legally wrong or illegal, right? And so decoupling the illegal is immoral and immoral is illegal sort of paradigm or pair that often that comes up. There's a pun in there somewhere, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably part of it. And so I think LCI, we've shown that libertarians, that Christianity is an ally and that the core of Christianity is nonviolence and that the politics of Jesus are antithetical to empire. And so LCI has been able to sort of kind of beat on that drum a lot because it's a really important part of our mission. Yeah. So I want to flip that around then. Based on that, what do you think are some of the best strategies for convincing other libertarians about Christianity? Well, what do you mean convince them about Christianity? Like it's important to be Christian or what? So if you're going to share the gospel with a libertarian who has no religious inclinations whatsoever, what would be some strategy? Like, would you approach that differently than you would somebody yeah. else? Or like, I guess on a related note, how would you draw the connection? If there's a libertarian who has no interest in becoming religious, how would you make the connection for them that your Christian faith legitimately intersects with libertarian philosophy? Oh, yeah. I would say that our allegiance is to Jesus and not to the state. And when you say it that way, what that does is that it, you'd have to spell it out, of course, and that's what you're asking me to do, which is basically that if I'm declaring that Jesus is Lord and the state is not, just go with that, then I have every right to question anything the state does. That should be my end to a libertarian, right? What ends up happening, though, is people will not believe that that's actually what you're doing. And I'm not impugning any particular person, but what will happen is they will think, well, wait, but like if you're a Christian, doesn't that mean that you think that laws need to be X, Y, and Z? And I'll say as a libertarian, no, I don't, right? And that my politics socially aligns with libertarianism more than it does, a lot more than it does with like social conservatism. Even if I am a social conservative in a sort of morality perspective, that might make some libertarians cringe a little bit and be like, well, I don't know if I trust you. But at the same time, when I avow that Jesus is Lord and the state is not, that my allegiance is to Christ, that should relieve them. Because what that's going to do is at the very least, let me like paint it in a like sort of a bleak way. They could be like, oh, okay, fine. He thinks that Jesus is Lord. And he thinks Jesus rose from the dead. And he's his personal savior. And they could sort of write us off as like deluded about our faith. But if we're that committed to something that they think is a delusion, then they shouldn't see us as a threat when it comes to politics. Right. They shouldn't see us as like some sort of like Trojan horse into like making the state out to be the arbiter of conservative values. Right. Hi, this is Gregory Baus. And this is Carrie Baldwin. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may want to check out the other shows in the Christians for Liberty Network, such as the Reformed Libertarians podcast hosted by me and Carrie. We educate and inspire listeners to embrace and promote libertarianism as grounded in the Reformed faith. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to offering a variety of content you love, like what you're hearing in this very episode. So now back to the show, and then be sure to check out reformedlibertarians.com. Well, you guys were able to participate in Freedom Fest 2022. Before you explain the question I'm about to ask you, we might need to explain to my audience what Freedom Fest is, because I know I have a lot of listeners that will have never yeah. heard of that before. So you guys go to Freedom Fest. What was it like being openly Christian at an event like that? So yeah, so Freedom Fest is an annual event held typically in Las Vegas, although they're starting to go around different cities. During COVID, they went to South North Dakota. They went to one of the Dakotas. I'm sorry to everybody who lives in either of the Dakotas who don't know <laughs> who everybody else outside, but I lived in West Virginia and a lot of people don't realize that it was its own state. But anyway, I understand the dilemma there. But anyway, one of the Dakotas they were in, this year they're going to be in Memphis, but it was in Vegas, the one that we went to in 2022. And I would have to say that we got almost no animosity. Let me ask you this. Where do you think of the handful of people that came up and gave us some sort of pushback? Which kinds of people do you think were more an animus toward us? So I'm going to go ahead and say, now I want to say this very sensitively because I am, I'm like, I'm an ecumenical libertarian as well. Mm -hmm. Like I think that there's value in every different branch of libertarians, or of libertarianism, but I'm going to have a guess that it's probably more of the reason magazine reading type that oh, would no. have animos. No. Okay. No, no, no. This is sort of a trick question. It was all the conservative Christians. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. Because I, yeah, because I guess you think of Freedom Fest, and I guess I'm so 
white pilled on libertarianism right now that I wouldn't think yeah, that yeah. conservative Christians would be at an event called Freedom Fest. But that makes sense. Okay, so that makes, yeah, that makes yeah, a lot no, of sense. Well, so Freedom Fest, yeah, I should probably elaborate oh, a little yeah. bit more. Freedom Fest is more than just libertarian. Yeah, I also got to apologize to all the Reason Magazine listening people. <laughs> I mean, I, I am a subscriber to Reason Magazine. I love yeah. Reason Magazine. I really do. Yep, it's we're great good. in a lot of ways. So anyways, go ahead. Oh, no, they can take it. We're friends. I actually got to meet Nick Gillespie, who's kind of like their That's main awesome. featured journalist. Yeah, I love him. He intimidates me or did. Okay. And then I kind of ran into him at the Reason booth at Freedom Fest and had a really great conversation for about 15 minutes with him. He introduced me to a guy named John Barry. who talked about Roger Williams. He was a big fan of that book, which is about 10 or so years old. But anyway, we had a really great conversation. He was very conversant. He was vaguely familiar with that we existed, but now, you know, we're a little more on his radar. Stephanie Slade is a friend of ours and we've worked yeah, with her on a handful of things. She was at that Christians for Liberty conference in 2014 that I mentioned. Oh, awesome. So that's, so she was involved there. Yeah. There's a handful of Christians over at Reason. So they're not anti-Christian. Maybe some of them are, but like as an organization, they're not, at least as far as I can tell, maybe they are, but nobody acts like it if they do. No, it was all the really conservative sort of sometimes post-libertarian or sort of the conservative Christians who like really like liberty, but like, oh, but we need to have certain values still inculcated into the education system and society and that kind of thing. And so it was a handful yeah. of people, but Freedom Fest is a little bit more ecumenical than just freedom or than just libertarian organizations. There will be a good number of conservative, liberty-leaning organizations. Yeah. And if you want to get a sense of like the kinds of freedom promoting people that they'll have. I mean, they even had Donald Trump speak and I think it was 2016, right? And they've had Jordan Peterson and they've had a handful of other, they've had John McWhorter, who has never voted Republican in his life, says he, talk about certain topics. So they're probably more ecumenical in that way than you or I are. But in any case, what was it like being there? It was really, really a great time because we got to present ourselves as an organization that a lot of people weren't familiar with. And most of the time, people would come up and be like, kind of what you did when you read the back of Austin Rogers' book, and be like, oh, there something exists for this? And so we had this big banner that says, Opposing Empire Since AD 33, <laughs> which got a lot of people's attention. It was great. And so it was great meeting a lot of people. We had great conversations. We did a breakout session, which you can find on our YouTube channel, where we, it was basically a panel discussion on a handful of topics moderated by Matt Bellis. So we had a great time. We got to meet a lot of people. We're going to be there again. If all goes well, we'll have an even greater presence at Freedom Fest this year and with partnerships with bigger organizations. So LCI is on the move and we're growing pretty well. So yeah, that's awesome. So what are who do you think are some of the best thinkers in the libertarian world right now? Like who are the most influential mm. people in our kind of political philosophical sphere? Besides you, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I'm really the only person you need to be talking to right. about this. <laughs> it's interesting as the Ron Paul, I would say that I'm sort of a Ron Paul libertarian in that in, in a number of ways. But the reason I'm bringing it up right now is that at the time, which was 2008, 2012, in that range of time, Ron Paul was sort of the voice of liberty in, in politics. He was a voice of liberty on the libertarian speaking circuit, on the libertarian event circuit. People were talking about his ideas and his flavor. Not everybody. There are people in the Libertarian Party who aren't big fans of Ron Paul. But that was part of what draw, drew a lot of people into the movement. At the time, there were a lot of thinkers because they weren't as well known. Or no, I wouldn't say they weren't as well known, but they were well known more broadly. Like you have people like Russ Roberts, you have Brian Kaplan. Man, Thomas Sowell was important to me. And as the movement has, I would say, moved on from Ron Paul, and I don't think it has, I think there's a handful, it's been more dispersed. And so there are a handful of really, really good thinkers. I don't know if I know like who the preeminent ones are, because I think a lot of times the libertarians who are out there are finding their answers from a variety of people rather than just like, oh, well, I'm just going to read Rothbard and just sort of build everything <laughs> from there, right? which is how that is. Now, maybe I'm a little off on this, but there are a lot of organizations out there that that have a lot of really good people out there. I think the libertarian movement has grown in such a way that allows more voices to be heard. We've got a lot of good podcasts. Yeah, I don't have a lot of like, yeah, libertarian thinkers. It might be a tough question for me because I've diversified my interest a little bit. And so I don't know who's the number one guy to that you can't get on your podcast. 
Right. Yeah. Well, no, I think that's a really great answer because there are a lot of unique voices out there. And I think that it's good to hear from a variety of different perspectives on that. And there are a lot of people that make a lot of different sense at a lot of different angles. And I think having kind of that openness and being willing to consult more than, again, just like Rothbard, Hayek and Mises are the greats, like they're the backbone, I think, of the liberty movement. But there's a lot more out there than just the three of them as well. And I guess kind of going along with that, one of the things when I first found out about LCI and I started listening to the podcast is I realized that you have done a lot of work on critical theory. Now, I know I'm kind of opening up a big box and we only have a few minutes left in <laughs> this interview. And I hate to use the phrase in a nutshell, so I'm not going to do that. But you've done a lot of work on critical theory. Maybe you could define that and then explain to us why it's such an important topic to study, because it does kind of relate. When I was on your show, yeah. we talked about postmodernism, and there is at least a nominal relationship between those two philosophies. So just kind yeah. of explain that and why, what motivated you to study it. Well, in a nutshell, <laughs> I'll say it for you. In a nutshell, critical theory is, and here's, man, I tell you what, I'm going to be a little bit vulnerable here and say that I don't have definitions memorized the way I feel like a lot of other people do. If I were really prepared for this interview, I would have written that down because you did send me this question <laughs> and I would have been prepared to do it. But all that to say, critical theory in a nutshell is basically a highly, a way of approaching knowledge and a way of approaching disciplines that whether it's a scientific discipline or a social discipline in academia with a sort of skeptic or critical view. As in like you pick it apart and you will basically find things kind of wrong with it, right? And it's a way of looking at the world that is to find things like what is wrong. So for example, critical race theory, which is a critical theory of race, would basically look for why does racism exist in our world, okay? And I would say that Critical race theory is a little bit more where I've done some, I wouldn't say study, but I've dabbled in studying it, I should say. I say that lightly. And in a nutshell for that, it's basically everything can be explained by white supremacy and colonialism. Like that's kind of where everything goes. And it might have been James Lindsay who said this joke, but like basically critical race theory is like a choose your own adventure book where every storyline ends with <laughs> you are a racist. <laughs> it's a great way um, of putting it. Well, and it really is. I mean, I realized that like at some point, and part of it has to do with like the language games people play. I mean, you and I talked about postmodernism a little bit when I interviewed you and you've talked about it a little bit. And the fundamental impulse between postmodernism is that you can be humble in your epistemology. And I think that basic impulse is actually correct. And I think that it's, and that's partly why I'm a libertarian is that I can question how people believe they have come to truth and understand that they were shaped and formed in different ways. And that's why they articulated their knowledge as truth in a certain way, right? And so you can look back at the human generation of knowledge over, over decades and millennia, right? Centuries and millennia. And you can see that people were shaped by their times, okay? Like, we look back at Thomas Jefferson and he thought we needed a revolution every 20, 25 years. Well, he said that because of, he believed that because of certain things. And he was a man of his time and we were all people of our time and we can give some people a pass. What critical theory often will do is sort of superimpose the, what we know as today is just absolutely wrong, such as racism or slavery or I mean, you just pick a number of things that like nobody nowadays would actually say is a good thing to have in society. And they will just say that, well, we can't do any, we can't learn anything from any of those people because, because of those things. Like, oh, well, they were just white supremacists. So clearly their views on what it means to be equal written in the Declaration of Independence is, was skewed. Well, okay. Well, does that mean we're not equal? Or what are you trying to say here? Right? So that's kind of what's happening there. You asked me why it was important to understand and study it. And I think that's probably what I'm a little bit more passionate about is understanding that freedom of expression and freedom of thought are basically for me a non-negotiable. I do not understand the mindset that says we have to censor, that says we have to be against free speech. When someone says that free speech is a white privilege kind of thing or free speech is violence or is a right-wing phenomenon, I'm like, D go back to kindergarten, dude. Like, seriously, <laughs> like this is, this is not even like, and I understand. I mean, I've read a book that sort of talks about free speech in a whole bunch of different ways. And one of those ways was like, how do you justify free speech? And is it about harm versus about freedom of expression? I'm going to go down with the John Stuart Mill view of free expression. But in any case, it's really, really important because 
we're one phase away from thought police when you have this sort of phenomenon happening where you can't even, let alone say, like, I understand certain contexts you shouldn't say things that are going to be inflammatory. Like, I kind of understand why people's impulse would be that way. At the same time, we're one step away from people actually censoring. Right. And actually, like, we've seen it happen from time to time and we're seeing it on big tech platforms. So it's really, really important to me to get it right. And really, I'll just go back and say, the reason I was interested in it at all had mostly to do that I heard with the fact that I know that a lot of Republicans, especially Republican lawmakers, think of like DeSantis and some of these other lawmakers who are, or elected Republicans, I should say, I guess they're all lawmakers, talking about critical race theory is doing this, doing that, and they're pushing this agenda and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, these people are overselling it because they want to rile up their base and so forth. And I'm like, like I said, with postmodernism, I'm going to question everything. It's possible that there's some truth here. And so I went, I went exploring and I was like, oh yeah. So they are overblowing it a little bit, but not a lot in this case. And there is something worth understanding. I read Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk's Introduction to Critical Race Theory. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, these people are talking about judicial activism as a moral good because it can sometimes eliminate the inherent biases. And I was like, I'm okay with that. Like, that's not anti-libertarian. Criminal justice reform. Like, if there's any alignment at all with libertarianism <laughs> on this, it's criminal justice reform. And you look at how inherent the racism can be in certain criminal justice situations, it's not a huge leap. It's okay to say that there's such a thing as white privilege. That doesn't mean it explains everything. It doesn't mean that everything that I do is operating on, on white privilege. It's okay to... So there's a truth to some of this, but these people want to make it the only thing that exists, the only thing that can explain, the only thing that actually has any value to understanding why X exists. Yeah. So anyway, that's why it's really important to me because it's a totalizing ideology. And in that, it becomes basically a religion where you have your priests, you have your sacred texts, Ibram X. Kendi, Robin D'Angelo, some others, some other names that are out there. And those people might have good things to say from time to time, but for the most part, this thing is acting like it's a, its own religion, which is why a lot of people are kind of looking at this and saying, hang on, these are people who are not really in favor of religion. They're like, wow, this is a religion. And guess where this religion is really trying to take a foothold? In the state. Well, guess what the state would really love to do? Be its own religion and be worshipped. So that's why it's a big, that's why it's a big deal. Yeah, no, that, that was a great answer. Just kind of real quick as we begin to wrap up here, I know that the worldviews that are generated by critical theory are becoming more and more prominent in American culture it right is. now. And there are a lot of people that might not understand how critical theory works as a philosophy of understanding reality, but that nevertheless embrace a lot of the conclusions that are drawn by yeah. the critical theorists. Where do you see the direction of our country headed, given that this seems to be a very prevalent phenomenon in our society? Yeah, the other day I was thinking about something and the three words that came to mind was diversity, inclusion, and equity. And they came up randomly in my mind about some situation that I was in. And I was like, wow, these are not bad words. But guess what? Diversity and equity and inclusivity is a buzzword of woke capitalism, right? And I think a lot of people are accepting of these terms. Who doesn't want to be an anti-racist? Like, it's a loaded question, right? Like, right. it's sort of like, why did you stop beating your wife? <laughs> right. It's like, There's well, wait, no good I can't answer. answer. There's <laughs> no good answer because it's like, you're. so it's like, who wants to be called an answer? Well, am I an anti-racist? Well, no, I'm not an anti-racist simply because I know what that term means, right? right? And a lot of people talked about this with the Black Lives Matter when it sort of became prominent. It's like, well, of course I believe the Black Lives Matter. And I do believe that there is a, just for the record here, I don't, have a problem with emphasizing that Black Lives Matter if that's something right. that's been forgotten and it's something that people haven't focused on. That doesn't mean that it's the only thing we need to think of. It doesn't mean that I'm woke. It doesn't mean that I am an anti-racist in the sort of like creedal definition of an anti-racist, right. right? Am I against racism? Yes. But to be an anti-racist means I have to somehow fall under whatever Ibram X. Kendi defines anti-racism as. That's not what I am affirming. Right. Right. And so I don't, he doesn't get to define what anti-racism means just because he wrote three books about it. Right. right. So all that to say, 
you're asking me about the direction of our country, I think a lot of people will look at some of these terms and will be accepting of it simply because they are, in common parlance, they're good words. The problem, though, is that people don't realize the ideology sort of that's underpinning them. Noel Maring says that you can be in favor of the intent, but not the ideology. And you can sort of be like, well, of course, I don't want racism and I'll do anything I can that's within my power to make sure that racism isn't happening in my company or racism isn't happening in my church or whatever, whatever you might want to say. But what ends up happening is those words end up being co-opted in language. And that's, again, where the whole postmodern thing is being connected by people like James Lindsay because they don't share your dictionary, they share your vocabulary. And so they end up co-opting words that everybody just kind of goes along with. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, you mean this? And not a lot of people, not everybody's going to wake up and say, what, you, wait, what? I didn't agree to this. Some people are just going to, their children are just going to agree to it. I'll give you an example. I have nieces that are in their late teens, early 20s in that type. And I use the word master bedroom and they're like, you can't use that word anymore. I'm like, that's not true. I'm not going to not use that word. And we had right, this big yeah. argument about it, but they're like, no, you got to say primary bedroom. You can't say master bedroom anymore. And I'm like, this it's is like, ridiculous. Like, like, I, I know I but, pay for this house. I am the master of my house. I'm going to call it my master bedroom. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like I have mastered. Well, and for me, it's like I have mastered making this bedroom because I built this bedroom anyway. So they just accept it. That's it's like, well, you're not supposed to say that anymore. And sometimes you, it takes people challenging. And other times it's like, okay, who cares if we start saying primary bedroom? Like there is really like on the one hand, I want to sort of push back and say, no, you're making a big deal out of something that isn't actually a big deal. Right. And that's not where that word came from. But at the end of the day, there are some things that's like, eh. and a lot of people might want to know, like, am I white pilled or not? And I would say I'm a little more white pilled than I am black pilled, although I do have my moments that our society is going to become more and more free in some ways and less and less free in others. And I think we have the ability to sort of shape how that goes. And I don't know, I'm not very good at predicting the future. So yeah, well, hey, you know what, this is why we need organizations like LCI to push people down the path to freedom. So just to kind of wrap us up today, tell us what's going on with LCI right now, and then where people can find all of your work. Yeah, all of our stuff can be found at libertarianchristians.com. So our website was founded in 2008. Okay, so there are, I would say, at least a thousand, if not more, articles out there. And then over 300 episodes of the Libertarian Christian podcast. And then now we have the Christians for Liberty Network, which is a network of podcasts and shows dedicated to amplifying voices of liberty, like the Biblical Anarchy podcast, the... Reformed Libertarians podcast. We have the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast, which is like if you just want bite-sized five to ten minute answers on the most commonly asked tough questions, you can get those like just very quick episodes, really easy to digest, share with your friends, that kind of thing. What we're doing this year in 2023 and, and even beyond is we are trying to grow our content production, whether that is through more shows on the Christmas for Liberty Network or adding regular contributors to sharing articles or to writing articles, and then also greater event participation. I mentioned earlier, of course, that we were going to be at Freedom Fest again. And we are also, as we grow in funds and the ability to pull off traveling a lot more, we will be going to other events throughout the country and or sponsoring in those events. Sometimes we might just attend as people in the organization and just network while we're there. And sometimes we might actually have a table at a booth to get there. So we're growing in that way. And we just have a lot of really good people creating content. And I would say at the moment, our content is a little bit, um, and I don't say this is a bad thing, but at the moment, it's a little bit more podcast, YouTube channel heavy, but that's where things are moving. A lot of people, like I, I know a lot of people want to read articles and we're still producing all of those, but we are creating lots and lots of podcast episodes every week and they are wonderful. They are great. So you can check those out. You can go to christiansforliberty.net if you want to remember that, or you can go to libertarianchristians.com. They kind of lead to the same place, but that's where things are. All right, perfect. Well, I'll put links all, to all of those things in the show notes. Doug, thank you so much for coming on the show today, man. This has been great. Yeah, thanks for, uh, you, you challenged me a bit. I uh, didn't have thorough answers on everything, so I had to come up with them on the fly. Hey, and you know, you sounded really good doing it. I know that the audience wants to see you looked really good doing it too. It, it was, it was flawless. <laughs> it was flawless. <laughs> Well, Doug, again, I really appreciate it, man. Thank you. Yeah, no, it was a pleasure being here, Alex. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.